Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, the city of Greeley is trying to convince residents that its potential for the future lies beneath a ranch on the Wyoming border. Greeley is growing. It's expected to double before 2050. And as a water provider, we respond to that growth. We'll look at a controversial aquifer project the city is pursuing. Plus, we'll hear about a historic baseball tournament that helped break the sport's color barrier. That and more, coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The coronavirus pandemic has disrupted life in countless ways. Today, we're going to look at two different aspects of that, beginning with how the pandemic has contributed to a rise in addiction and drug overdoses. Overdose deaths involving the powerful synthetic opioid fentanyl are double what they were two years ago. Health officials had worried that the pandemic, which has contributed to higher rates of anxiety and depression, would lead to more deaths from drug overdoses. And recent data supports those concerns. Joining us now with more is Jennifer Brown, who has been reporting on this for The Colorado Sun. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about these drug overdose numbers because the trends are alarming. What is behind this drastic surge in deaths involving drug overdoses? Well, you're right, Henry. It's really alarming. And I think those of us, you know, in journalism and elsewhere have been hearing for the last few years, you know, maybe three to five years, um, there have been warnings by public health officials and law enforcement that fentanyl is increasingly um, on the streets um, in Colorado. What happened in 2020 is, you know, sort of one of those perfect storms where drug and alcohol abuse were on the rise in general during the pandemic in the days of being isolated. And then secondly, in Colorado, anyway, it coincided with fentanyl really being a lot more easy to get out on the streets. I know you spoke with a doctor from Denver Health who said fentanyl didn't have much of a presence here in Colorado, say, five years ago. How is the drug getting into the hands of people here now, and how has that changed? Fentanyl, first of all, is a synthetic, you know, man-made powder. And you make it with certain chemicals that are being shipped directly from bad guys in China to Mexico, where drug manufacturers in Mexico are like basically making fentanyl pills in their garages and warehouses. And according to the DEA agent that I spoke to, I mean, they're doing this because they can just purchase the same kind of pill press machines that, you know, the actual pharmaceutical industry uses. So they they put all these chemicals together in Mexico, press them into pills, and, you know, then they're trafficked up into Colorado across the border. And this has changed from a few years ago when a lot of the, the drugs were arriving via port, basically on boats from China onto the East Coast and the West Coast. And since the DEA has really clamped down, I guess, on that, that way of getting drugs into the country, now it's this, as I said, direct shipping from China to Mexico then to Colorado. Well, I'm curious, you know, just knowing about travel restrictions, would these numbers be higher if transportation was more free-flowing? I'm not really sure um, about how border restrictions have affected it, but I do know, you know, they're working really hard on it in Colorado, trying to clamp down um, 
just last week, the attorney general's office here, along with the DEA, announced this huge grand jury indictment. They indicted 64 people in this international drug trafficking network. I mean, they're talking about like 77,000 counterfeit Oxycontin pills. So, you know, they're basically copying these drugs, make them look just like as close as they can to the real thing. And what's terribly frightening about it is 26% of those drugs that they had confiscated contained lethal doses of fentanyl. So, I mean, the problem is there's people don't realize that they're getting fentanyl, which can instantly kill you, which is, you know, 10 times at least more potent than heroin. What are lawmakers doing to address this issue? Is it on top of mind for anyone? I think it always is. There, are, For the last several years, there have been multiple bills each session that have to do with opioid overdoses in Colorado, which is, have been, you know, on the rise since 2000, for sure. And most of those bills that have passed um, really focus on access to treatment, letting more places open, you know, having people more eligible to get treatment there and also to kind of keep track of statewide of who's got an opening and when you can get somebody in. I think what's really an interesting conversation that's gone on for the last couple of years and, you know, so far has been really a non-starter is this idea of a a safe injection site or a a supervised drug consumption facility that some people have pushed to open. The city of Denver already approved it, but it requires a change in state law for it to be allowed. Jennifer Brown is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to her reporting on all of this at our website, KUNC.org. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Henry. It's been nearly a year since Colorado identified the first cases of coronavirus. And in the months since, it's clear that having to wear masks, stay apart from family and friends, and postpone many of the social and cultural events we're used to has not been easy. But in recent weeks, a growing number of people have had a harder time keeping their guard and their spirits up. KUNC's Ray Solomon is one of those who's been feeling this so-called pandemic fatigue. So she decided to dig into the phenomenon to better understand what it's all about. By all accounts, I've been extremely lucky. Still working, still healthy. My inner circle hasn't felt any of the harshest effects of this pandemic. And until recently, I've been pretty much just chugging along. But in the past month, sleeping has become an issue. Same deal concentrating at work and finding the energy to cook. Then I started seeing more and more angst and exhaustion in my Twitter feed and from my friends, and it finally dawned on me, I'm not alone here. Whether or not you've been infected by the novel coronavirus, pandemic fatigue is now the latest bug going around. I would say it's uh, it's a type of burnout. That's Paul Barnett, Associate Director of Adult Treatment and Recovery with the State Office of Behavioral Health. According to the National Institute of Health, burnout is a state of emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion caused by excessive and prolonged stress. And Barnett told me that pandemic burnout manifests in a number of different ways. Feeling overwhelmed, emotionally drained, lacking energy, feeling empty and unmotivated, feeling an increase in irritability, increased conflicts in your relationships, feeling stuck, exhausted, hopeless. Barnett says that increasing pandemic fatigue is tangible 
and quantifiable in Colorado. Calls to the state's crisis services line have increased a lot in the past year, reaching an all-time high in October, which is the last month for which they have reliable data. Mental health facilities in the state are starting to be overwhelmed, and there's plenty of evidence that substance abuse is way up in the state this year. I've been a clinician for 25 years. I've never seen anything like this in my life. In terms of mental not just the pandemic, but in terms of mental health crisis. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say the effect on people's mental health, uh, behavioral health, to include substance use, um, is by far the worst the time that I've ever experienced. I also checked in with April Alexander, a psychology professor at the University of Denver. She explains pandemic fatigue as the result of a year of grief and loss. Some people did lose their jobs. Some people did lose loved ones, but also loss of experiences. Uh, Thinking about birthdays, graduations, celebrations with your friends and loved ones, all of those things we missed out on last year. Why now? Like people who have been coping and, you know, no one's been having fun, but why at this point in time is this happening? Hope is what's getting us antsy, uh, that we've been tired for so long of um, all these experiences being taken away from us. And we're ready to get back to quote unquote normal. Mental health experts say that when people have endured stress for a long time, a little bit of hope that doesn't dramatically move the needle on relief can actually make people feel worse before they feel better. Coming into 2021, we now have a vaccine, which is giving us a little bit of hope that maybe we're almost towards the end. Um, Some people say maybe not, so that we still have a long ways to go. There's another side to this too, a side that's less psychological and more communal. I've just been so slow lately, and I think that it's relevant to our topic today. Reverend Amanda Henderson is director of the Institute for Religion, Politics, and Culture at the Isle of School of Theology, and she told me that she's also feeling it. I'm a believer that we are all connected and that what impacts one impacts all of us. And so that it's not just one person experiencing levels of stress, that we're experiencing a collective stress. And anyway, these are the material impacts of our collective consciousness. She says there's also something about the monotony of it all, the way so many of us have started to experience time more or less as a featureless puree of sameness. I'm used to being around different smells and different textures and different sights and like seeing different landscapes. They stimulate a different part of our brain that longs for variety and, and diversity of stimulation to be able to, you know, move those connections, that that's a part of our human creative energy that we just aren't getting right now. Luckily, the Reverend can tap into her expertise on all things spiritual to offer some advice for working through the antsiness and anxiety and exhaustion of pandemic fatigue. There's this just noticing it. But, you know, I feel malaise. I feel discontent. I know that there are people suffering all around me in ways that are more intense than I am. It doesn't change that I'm still feeling this malaise. And it doesn't mean you get stuck in it, but it doesn't mean you feel guilty about it. You just notice it. And she says while communal energy can be a vehicle for pain, it can also bring solace. That collective consciousness of the pain and suffering also brings a collective deeper vulnerability and connection to our own suffering, which it moves you to a different level of relationship. Connection is key. 
April Alexander agrees. We didn't value maybe as much the importance of connection until this moment, that we are connected beings and we need that and we need the supports in order uh, to live healthy, happy, productive, thriving lives. Look, we're all tired of Zoom and meet and screen socials of all kinds, but right about now, our collective pandemic fatigue is compounded by midwinter doldrums. The extreme cold is keeping us nature-loving Coloradans cooped up inside. These are tough times. But Reverend Henderson has faith in our resilience. That means being okay, even when the world is not okay. It's not a hope that's dependent on a certain outcome. It's a hope regardless. Hang in there, folks. Ray Solomon, KUNC. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The city of Greeley wants to keep growing, and it needs water to do it. Over the last couple of years, leaders have zeroed in on a new underground water supply to make that possible. The multi-million dollar project would give the city access to a large untapped water source. But as KUNC's Luke Runyon reports, the plan is not without opposition. It's frigid and windy on the day I visit Terry Ranch along the Colorado-Wyoming border north of Greeley. With its hundreds of grazing bison just off I-25, it's an unlikely place for a massive water storage project. Looking around, you certainly don't see any water. We are in a high prairie area with rolling hills. Adam Jokerst with the city's water department is standing next to a test well drilled deep into an aquifer that's held in place by layers of rock below the property. Think of it like an enormous contact lens under the surface, filled to the brim with water. And very well could be this, the future of Greeley's water supply. It's an idea city officials have been pitching to residents over the last few months. Here's how it would work. Greeley would get the water in the aquifer from a private company, Wingfoot Water Resources. And the city would have years to build the pipelines and pump stations needed to draw water out of the aquifer and put additional water in it. Greeley is growing. It's expected to double before 2050. And as a water provider, we respond to that growth. The storage project was born out of a 15-year-long process to enlarge one of the city's existing above-ground reservoirs along the Poudre River. Expanding dams and flooding riparian habitat comes with its own financial and legal problems. And when the aquifer project presented itself as a cheaper alternative with fewer environmental concerns, Joker says they jumped on it. What makes this so attractive for Greeley is that we already have a robust surface water portfolio. And this would be our drought supply. Um, In a drought, this water will still be here. However, the financial arrangement to make this possible is far from simple. By handing over ownership of the water, Wingfoot, the company that owns the aquifer now, would receive credits, redeemable by developers interested in building within city limits. So as part of the deal, Greeley gets a big underground bucket of water and Wingfoot makes their investment back when new water users like subdivisions and commercial districts come knocking. You know, these credits will only be valuable as long as uh, the city continues to prosper. That's Wingfoot founder and CEO Christopher Dietzler. Greeley is already projected to grow. 
But Dietzler says this deal could make his company one of the city's biggest boosters. You know, there may be opportunities where a large business that requires a lot of water wants to locate in Greeley, and we may be able to really facilitate that happening. But some aspects of the Terry Ranch project have made a small group of residents, like John Guthrie, anxious. Guthrie worked as an engineer for the city for more than 20 years. Yeah, main concerns are that there's, uh, you know, we're going, making a major change from surface water, uh, high mountain uh, snow melt, high quality water, That's because water pumped from the aquifer contains small amounts of uranium. Some tests showed uranium levels hovering right around the highest level state regulations allow for drinking water, so high enough to raise concern. City water staff say the uranium can be treated to undetectable levels, but Guthrie wants commitments from the city that it will remove all uranium in perpetuity. No one should be drinking uranium if they can help it. They have a choice. We have a choice. Uh, We've got a good uh, mountain supply that can be expanded. Guthrie is also worried at how fast Greeley is trying to wrap up the deal. He notes that the project has only been public knowledge since last summer, and what's being proposed would play into how the city develops for a century or more. Back at Terry Ranch, the city's Adam Jokerst says the project has run a gauntlet of feasibility studies, and so far they haven't come across a deal breaker. We have a obligation to our ratepayers to when they have a tap from Greeley that it will always have water. The Greeley City Council is expected to take a final vote on the deal during its March 2nd meeting. If approved, the city would shift their plans away from expanding existing reservoirs. I'm Luke Runyon. Saturday marked the 101st anniversary of baseball's Negro League. Back when the sport was segregated, the league was where greats like Satchel Paige, Hank Aaron, and Jackie Robinson all got their starts. Although Colorado didn't have any teams of its own, the state did play a large role in integrating the sport almost 90 years ago. Colorado Edition's Alana Schreiber spoke with the president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick, about a historic tournament that was later dubbed the Little World Series of the West. Early 1930s Colorado wasn't exactly a beacon of hope for racial progress. The Ku Klux Klan sponsored multiple members of the state House and Senate. And redlining practices kept African Americans from moving into prosperous neighborhoods. Nor was Colorado a stronghold for baseball. The state had a couple of semi-pro teams. But the major leagues only extended as far west as St. Louis. And the Negro Leagues as far west as Kansas City. But in 1934, Oliver Marcel, or as he was better known, the Ghost, had an idea to put baseball on the map and integration on the mind in the Mountain West. The Louisiana-born former Negro League third baseman had recently moved to Denver, and when the Denver Post was gearing up for its annual semi-pro baseball tournament, he insisted that the Kansas City Monarchs, a Negro League team, receive an invitation. The one thing we know is that the message absolutely got to J.L. Wilkinson, who owned the Kansas City Monarchs. That's Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City. The Denver Post Tournament was the first organized baseball tournament to integrate, which allowed black teams in. Wilkinson would enter the Monarchs into the tournament, but Wilkinson also had some booking rights of the House of David that he also booked into the tournament. And again, the House of David was an all-white religious sect. And so they used baseball to spread their gospel But they played a great role in black baseball as they would barnstorm all over the country playing with and against 
Negro League teams, most notably the Kansas City Monarchs. But Wilkinson hired Satchel Paige to play for the House of David in that tournament. Yes, that Satchel Paige. The star pitcher who held a long career in the Negro Leagues before making his major league debut at the ripe young age of 42. To this day, he's remembered as one of the hardest throwing pitchers in the game. The House of David became integrated. But that particular team was likely one of the few teams that actually was a white team that had black players on it. But Wilkinson also had some ulterior motives. In Wilkie's mind, he not only could win first place prize money, but he could also get second place prize money if everything went as planned. And so whether it was the ghost that got them in, Wilkinson's plan played out just as he had set it out to. Not only was this the first major integrated baseball tournament in the U.S., but the only integrated team at the tournament walked away with first place. The House of David and the Kansas City Monarchs dominated the tournament and ended up playing against each other in the championship game where Satchel and the great Negro Leaguer Chet Brewer hook up in an epic duel and the House of David would win the game 2-1 to one before an overflow crowd there in Denver, and Wilkinson walks away with both first and second place money. Now, I don't think they got invited back again. But despite Wilkinson's antics, it was the skill of the Negro League players that made a lasting impact on the fans. I think it was an indication that here was a cross-section of the population that maybe we had not paid attention to that can play this game. And that era had its own stigma associated with it. Even as the Post was writing the story, they would refer to Page as the chocolate whiz bang. You know, so you still had some of that racial stuff, but what white fans got a chance to do is see this great black talent. And uh, I think the reputation of these black ball players had preceded them anyway. People had heard about these players from the Negro League, but now they got a chance to see it for themselves. Colorado baseball historian Jay Sanford once said that Denver was the beginning of integration in baseball because Jackie Robinson certainly would not have integrated the league in 1947 had the Denver Post Tournament not done so in 1934. And according to Kendrick, he's right. It was setting the stage. It really was. Number one, it proved that black and white players could play on the same field together. Number two, you could see for yourself how good these players were. This certainly started to set the stage for integration because as we move forward, there was a groundswell of support from white fans because people were recognizing there is a lot of talent in this league called the Negro League. And uh, this talent seems to be just as good, maybe better than the talent that was playing in the major leagues. So something's wrong here. And I do think that Denver was this great showcase to show that this was a possibility. It could happen. It took 13 more years before it finally happened at the major league level, but it certainly did happen. But within those 13 years, minor league teams across the country started to cross the color lines. Baseball's integration didn't start when Jackie Robinson first stepped up to the plate in Dodger Blue. It was a domino effect. And according to Kendrick... Those semi-pro teams that knocked down the first piece deserve a bit more credit. There were very few competitions then that was even open to blacks, no less an integrated team. And uh, they opened that door. They created that opportunity. 
and there was nothing semi about this House of David and certainly nothing semi about that Kansas City Monarch team. And they really did pull a fast one in that tournament. (laughs) But as for Oliver Marcel, or the ghost, the man who insisted the Denver Post integrate the tournament in the first place, life was not too kind. After the Little World Series of the West, he worked a series of odd jobs and died in poverty in 1949. He was buried in Denver in an unmarked grave. It is a reflection of the challenge that we have with Negro League's history in general. It was never substantially documented in the pages of American history books. So American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. So we don't know the story of legendary ball players like Oliver the Ghost Marcel, who should absolutely be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. There are so many players who were part of the Negro Leagues that their stories still remain forgotten. The Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and it's our job to make sure that they are remembered, but not only remembered, but celebrated. Celebrated for what they did to help change the game of baseball, but more importantly, what they did to help change this country for the better. And in 1991, one of those Negro League ballplayers was finally celebrated. The Colorado Rockies, along with the help of Louisiana's minor league Zephyrs, ceremoniously unveiled a new headstone dedicated to the man who championed baseball's first major integrated tournament. If you visit Denver's Riverside Cemetery today, you'll find a grave that reads, Oliver the Ghost Marcel brought professional black baseball to Colorado. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 